you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be over in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, or you can uh, follow along on the Version Bible app uh, under the uh, more and then events, uh, Cornerstone Community Church, it should be the first one up. Uh, but you can follow along on there as well. And uh, as you're getting to Genesis chapter 6, we are continuing a series uh, titled Genesis Stories from the Beginning. And just within two weeks, the story of Genesis is just, it's crazy. Because in the very beginning, we see, you know, God creating the heavens and the earth. And he is putting everything together. He's creating the environment and the backdrop, and then he fills that backdrop, and he, he's creating all these things, and then he creates man. And he creates man, and he, he puts them in the garden, and he tells them, you are to work, uh, you have this task, but more than this, you are going to be in relationship with me, the, the God of the universe, designing his people to be in relationship with him. And it all starts off so well. Everything starts off so well. And then just like that, what people see is not a big deal. It's just a piece of fruit. But it's disobedience that brings sin into the world. And just like that, sin has run rampant. Sin fills the world. And we see a horrible example of sin. And we see anger and we see jealousy and we see this playing out in the story of Cain and Abel and Cain's jealousy his anger kills his brother and he laughs it off and flippantly who am I my brother's keeper and we see God give him this punishment and his only concern really is, man, my punishment's too severe. But we see an example of sin and what it looks like in this horrible form and sin has come into the world and now we come to Genesis chapter six. And what starts with just, it seems a little small act of disobedience has filled the world. And we come to a hard text Genesis 6 through 9, it's a hard text. It's a difficult text. It's been twisted. It's been torn apart by critics. It's been used by critics of God to say that God is worth our judgments. He's a horrible, moral monster. He's an angry, jealous God. That's all he is. And people use this story to try to say, this is who God is. But sometimes it's these hard stories. It's these hard text that teaches things that we need to know, important things that we need to know. And so this is where we're going to be in Genesis 6 this morning. We're going to start in uh, verse 9 and go through uh, verses 9 through 13. And it says, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. And God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. 
I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And so we start where we're at this morning in verse 9, meeting Noah. This is the account of Noah and his family. And so before we get into Noah and his family, we have to kind of go back a little bit. We have to go back to verse 5 or verse 6 of Genesis chapter 6. And listen to what verses 6 through 8 says. It says, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Man, such strong hard words from God. I, I regret making human beings on this earth. I regret that, that I have ever created them. I regret what I have done. Uh, his heart was deeply troubled. For the heart of God to be deeply troubled says a lot. And so he says, I'm going to wipe them from the face of the earth, the human race that I've created, every single creature, animals, birds, mankind, I'm going to wipe them all out. They're gone. Except for Noah. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we see here that it says that Noah was a righteous man. He was a blameless man among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God righteous. It has this idea he did what was right before God. Noah did what was right before God. And it's this idea of the condition of being acceptable to God is made possible by God. He was acceptable in the eyes of God because he did the things that were right before God. He was blameless, which means he did not do what was wrong in the sight of God compared to the rest of the world. And this is in no way saying that Noah was a perfect man. He wasn't. He was a sinful man, just as we all are. And he had sin in his heart, but he was righteous and blameless before God. And blameless in Scripture, it carries this idea of being exceptionally obedient to God. To be exceptionally obedient to God. And we think of this when we think of people such as Job. In Job 1.1, it tells us in the land of Uz, there was a man, or there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Job was blameless. We think of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Luke 1 and or Luke 1 verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. They were obedient. And what you see here is a dichotomy between Noah and the rest of the earth. Whereas Noah was seen as blameless and righteous before God, the earth was full of sin and wickedness. It was full of sin and wickedness, and we see it characterized by the word violence. It was violent, the world was. The word for violence here in Hebrew, it means physical violence, but also injustice, oppression, cruelty. The world has been filled with violence and the whole earth has become corrupted, everyone. And here's the thing, this was self-inflicted. This was self-inflicted. Nobody was listening to God. Nobody was obeying the commands of God. God didn't make everybody sinful, no. He didn't, he didn't make people sinful, no. Man, not listening to God and doing their own thing. This was self-inflicted. 
and it has become corrupted. Everyone, everything in the world had become corrupted. And these things were done in God's sight. And so what is God going to do? He is going to destroy all flesh, every human, every animal, and the land with it. Everything wiped out except Noah and his family and a few other creatures, which we'll talk about here in a minute. It, I like this quote that James Smith brings up. He points out that these words suggest that man's ruin had not been sought out by God, but had been thrust upon him as something which could no longer be ignored. These, this wasn't sought out by God. It had been thrust upon him. He saw the condition of the world and what has happened and how sin has run rampant. And now it could no longer be ignored. You see, as God, he has the power and the right as judge to carry out whatever he so desires. And in this case, in this, his will here, he as judge has the power and right to carry out this decision. And now we see him speaking to Noah. And he tells Noah that you have a task. Here's what I want you to do. And this is what he says in verses 14 through 16. He says, So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. And so he tells him he is going to build an ark. You know, God has been, or God has said he's planning to put an end to what he has created. And so he's going to use Noah as this restart. And so he wants him to build an ark. The word for ark in Hebrew, it it means chest, box, or coffin. He's not making a traditional boat. He's not making a, uh, you know, giant titan ship. No, he's making a ark that is developed to float. It was being designed to float, to preserve, to preserve life. And we see that the ark was to be made from gopher wood in some translations. In some translations, as the NIV, it says cypress. That's likely what it was. Most people believe it to be cypress. And it was to include... It was to include rooms, and it was to be coated with pitch to seal the wood, a sap that would be used as a sealant. And he gives dimensions for how big and wide and long and tall it's supposed to be built. And, uh, you know, he says 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. And so what does this mean? Well, a cubit is equal to around 18 inches or a little more. And actually, fun story, I don't think they mind me using their name. I know Ben and Whitney were at the uh, ARC experience in Kentucky uh, last week or the week before. And so I asked them, I go, what did they, what did they say the size was, what the cubits were? And uh, they told me they used a royal cubit, which was, uh, they said, could be 20 inches. And so uh, from what I've read, from what they say, I think we can say that it was probably around 450 to 510 feet long, or 137 meters if you're from the U.K., um, you know, it could be uh, anywhere from 75 to 85 feet wide, 45 to 55 feet high. 
it's a big it's a big boat with the intention to float and to preserve life and so build this ark build this ark this is what i want you to do and then in verses 17 through 22 he says i am going to bring flood waters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens every creature that has the breath of life in it everything on earth will perish but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Again, he tells him what his plan is. The reason for the ark is simple. He is going to send flood waters to destroy the earth and everything and everyone in it. This is going to change everything. This, it, the land will change. Uh, you know, topography. It will change. The no more. Cre- it's just this was going to be a changing event. And again. This is God using his authority as creator and Lord to, or to say, this is what I'm going to do. He is using his authority as creator and Lord to deliver justice. There's a consequence to be paid for sin. And he says, though, he's going to make a covenant with Noah and his family. Shows grace by setting up this covenant with the one person who has been obedient to him. And he makes a covenant with him. And covenant, it's this idea of carrying out an idea of pledge or a promise. God is saying, I'm going to save you from this flood. That's a guarantee. It's a promise set up between him and God. And then Noah is told to bring two of every kind of creature, male and female, so that they could repopulate And some have asked the question, and it's a very good question. How in the world did they manage to get all these different animals onto the ark? I mean, think about it. Isn't there like climates, like various types of climates of animals? Like, how are you going to have a polar bear and a kangaroo? Like, how are you going to go get all of these animals? Well, there's a couple of things to think about here. One... I like what John MacArthur says. He gives a pretty good explanation. He says, all the animals were created originally where? Where were they? In Eden. We know they were there because Adam did what? He named all of them. God gathered them all to be named, and the earth had a moderate climate that was essentially the same before the flood over all the earth. So animals weren't sorted out in terms of varying climates. They were all in that same area. They no doubt had spread around the earth, but there were plenty of them there that they could represent all of the species, and so they lived in enough proximity to be available. And here's the other thing. He didn't have to go out and find them. God was going to bring them to him. He didn't have to go out there and be like, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Like, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. They were going to, he was going to bring the animals to him. And a show of supernatural power from God for them to all come to him. And he tells them, you need to take food with you. You have to feed your family and you have to feed the animals. And 
He, this was likely, it was a vegetarian diet as animals wouldn't be used for food until after the flood. And so they are to take enough food to feed them and all the animals. And it says here at the end of chapter 6, Noah did everything as God had commanded him, just as God commanded him. This is a refrain that we will see over and over and over again this morning. Noah did exactly what God commanded him to do. And so that leads us into Genesis 7. In the first five verses of Genesis 7, it says, The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Again, we read about Noah. uh, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. I, I love that phrase. I have found you righteous in this generation. There is nobody else like you, Noah. All of the rest of this earth is wicked, filled with violence. It's sin everywhere. No, nobody wants to listen to what I tell them to do. Nobody wants to live by my commands except for you. You are the only one. I have found you righteous in this generation. This idea of him believing righteous, being right by God, accepted by God think it meant that he didn't live by the world standard. He didn't live by the things that the world was telling him he should do. And I, I think that's a good reminder for us not to live by the world standards and don't live by standards that oppose God. No, live by God's standards. Do what God tells you to do. Don't chase after things of this world. Chase after God. Don't chase after what the world tells you is good. Go after the things that God tells you are good. That's what we should be doing. First John 2.15 reminds us, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. James 4.4 says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And so Noah was this righteous man. And he tells him that you need to take Seven pairs of clean and unclean animals. This is the first time in scripture that we get this hint at this idea about clean and unclean animals. Jewish readers would have understood what Moses was talking about. Unclean would have been unedible animals or animals that couldn't be used for sacrifice. And clean animals were the opposite. They could be used for food, but they could also be used as sacrificial animals. And uh, Leviticus 11, and I included that in your uh, bulletin notes, uh, goes into more detail on what animals were considered clean and unclean, if you want to look at that. And he tells them, seven days from now, I'm going to send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I'm going to wipe from the face of the earth every living creature that I have made. And so he is going to flood the earth. And this isn't going to be just a local flood. This is going to be a big flood. And that's something that I read a whole lot about this week is this idea that it was a local flood. 
that the flood of the earth was a, a local flood. And when you hear the phrase earth in this text, some people like to say, well, the Hebrew word means local, and it's just the known world at that time. It wasn't the whole earth. It was just the known, uh, the known world at that time. I don't believe that to be the case. I believe that it was a whole earth event, not just a localized event, a whole earth event that was going to take place. The whole earth would be flooded. And you see, there's many biblical proofs that kind of talk about this when you read through scripture. And I I love that Got Questions points out the fact that there are many extra biblical evidences that point to a worldwide catastrophe such as a global flood. There are vast fossil graveyards found on every continent and large amounts of coal deposits that would require the rapid covering of vast quantities of vegetation. Oceanic fossils are found upon mountaintops around the world. Cultures in all parts of the world have some form of flood legend. All of these facts and many other uh, evidences are a sign of a global flood. And so he is going to flood the earth. And we see here again... Noah did as he was commanded by God. He did as he was commanded. Then we go into verses 6 through 24, get into the events and what happens. It says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals of birds and all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days of the flood, or after the seven days, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And that very day, Noah and his son, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with uh, his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. And so here we are. Uh, we come to we, or the events and we see that Noah was 600 years old. Chapter 5 tells us he was 500, and then in chapter 7, he is 600. This implies that Noah could have had 100 years to work on the ark, maybe a little less than that. Uh, You know, some believe that maybe the ark building came closer to an announcement of upcoming rain, which, think about it for a second, they had never experienced rain before this. 
I can't imagine that. It must have been like when rain came on the earth. But anyway, we see that rain comes. The day is finally here, and we get a, we get a date for this. It tells us in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, I like this. It almost gives us a authentication that this is a real event, that this really took place. Here is a date that this happened. And what we see here is a real event. And when it takes place, we see water come out from below the ground from the springs and above from the sky. Harkens back to chapter 1. We see God separate the water in the sky, the water on the ground. And now the floodgates have been opened and everybody gets on the boat And then the rains come, the water comes, the waters rose high and covers everything. Covers everything. For 40 days it rained and for 150 days the water flooded the earth. Everything was covered with water. Matter of fact, I think it's really interesting. Verse 20 tells us the water rose and covered the high mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. That would be more than 22 feet deep from the top of the highest peak to the surface of the water. Now, if you say what is the highest mountain, you know, we think of the highest mountain is Mount Everest. It's the tallest mountain in the world. How tall is it? It is 29,028 feet. But let's say for argument's sake, if the highest peak at that time was one of the peaks in the mountain of Ararat, it would have been, the highest peak would have been about 17,000 feet. So if you go with 17,000 feet, 22 feet deeper from the top of that peak to the surface of the water, That is a lot of water. And see, here's the thing. The point of this isn't to talk about what is, how deep was the water. The point is to point out that there is no possible way to escape this. There was no place that any creature, any person can go to hide from this. There was no preparing for this. There was no, okay, if I get here, then I'll be safe. There was nothing like that. There was no possible way for anyone to escape from this. Everything that had life breathed into it that moved on the land was gone. It was gone. And here is where people begin to have problems with God. Time begins. This is one of the big places where people have problems with God. Why would God do this? Why God is horrible. He's a, he's a moral monster. He would flood the whole world and kill everybody in it. God is a horrible, horrible God. Let's take out the fact that, again, there's consequence for sin and God is in his right to do this. What I think is so interesting is many believers try to argue this. Many believers try to look for ways to get God off the, the hook, if you will. I mean, there's no way that God would really do all this because God is a loving and a gracious and a peaceful God. There's no way that God would ever do anything big like this that would give any kind of judgment like this. And we try to come up with all these excuses and all these reasons why God couldn't do this because we want to get God off the hook. And here's the thing. It's not our job to get God off the hook. We don't need to get God off the hook. God tells us we don't need to get God is clear in his word that he is a God of judgment and he is in his right to do whatever he wants. He is. And I love how John MacArthur says it. He says, God does not resist taking responsibility for judgment. He doesn't expect us to get him off the hook. He doesn't expect us to develop some kind of heresy like the openness theology, which says God is essentially isn't responsible for anything. In fact, doesn't even know what's going on until he sees it just like you do and tries to sort it out. 
And all that theology develops because people are trying to get God off the hook from the judgments that occur in the world when God accepts and acknowledges that he is, in fact, responsible for them. God is the executioner. And it's his canvas. It's his, as creator, it's his canvas. He is the one who has the right to do according to his will, even when we don't understand it. Even when it doesn't always make sense to us, he is a God who can do what he so chooses because it is according to his will, and his will is always good, it's always just, it's always right, even when we don't always agree. And so, this is what he does. He sends this rain, this water, this flood onto the earth. And then we get into Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him on the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains become, or became visible. So here we see that God remembered Noah. Now, this does not mean like he forgot all about Noah. It was like, oh, oh, yeah, that's right, Noah's here. No, he he didn't forget about Noah. This just means that now, as this plan has unfolded, now God is going to start to calm things down and start getting rid of this water so that these animals and Noah and his family can get off of this boat. And so a great wind came over the earth and the water started to recede as the waters from the ground and the sky stopped. A great wind. How great must that? We think of Oklahoma and we think of all the wind we get here. Imagine how great a wind this was. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. This was a long way to go, but it was a start. And I can't imagine all that time being out on the water. Maybe you're, maybe you're one of those people that even just thinking about being on a boat makes you like get motion sickness. Can you imagine being out on the water for so many days, just floating and, you know, being in that, you know, I can't imagine all this time being on the water, but now God is going to start fixing this. And we see here now uh, in verse 6 through 12, it says, After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. And it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surfaces of the earth. And so it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. And he waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. And when the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth and he waited seven more days and sent the dove out again. But this time it did not return to him. So Noah waits an additional 40 days and then he decides to send out a raven to see if the raven could find dry ground that the water had gone down enough for a bird to perch, that means that land, or that there was some place for the bird to rest. If the land was too far, they would often come back to what was close. 
And it appears that he sends out the raven, and it sounds like the raven just never comes back. And so, uh, and it said that a raven could have possibly picked off the body of animals that were in the water. Um, But for whatever reason, the raven doesn't come back. And so he sends out a dove. And the first attempt sees the dove come back to the boat. And so Noah waits seven more days, and he sends out the dove again. And this time the dove comes back, but he comes back with a piece of olive leaf. And this is huge. This is huge. Imagine the response of Noah. It doesn't tell us the response, but you think Noah was probably giddy because all of a sudden there was a piece of olive leaf. Why is this such a big deal? Well, because all this time it seems like now there's a sign of life outside of the boat. And so I imagine his response was maybe, all right, this is a start. And then we see that he waits seven more days and he sends out the dove again. And this time the dove does not return. And again, I imagine the response of Noah was probably ecstatic. He was excited. He was joyful. The dove did not return. And then verses 13 through 19, it tells us, by the first day of the first month of Noah's six hundred and first year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the twenty-seventh day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. And here we are, dry ground freedom. I bet they got out and they fell on the ground and the freedom. No, I don't know. It's a lot of time spent on this boat Many people speculate how long exactly was he on the boat. And it's, most people say it was probably around 370 days if you use a lunar 360-day calendar. So he was on this boat most likely 370 days, a year and 10 days. That's a lot of time to be out on the water in a boat filled with you and your wife and your kids and their wives and all the animals that are on the boat with you. That is a lot of time to spend on a boat. And they all come out of the ark. And we all see and hear what it tells us, this blessing again. In Genesis chapter 1, he gives the animals the blessing to be fruitful and to multiply. And he gives the same blessing here, be fruitful and multiply and repopulate. And so the flood has come and it is gone. And now they are back out on dry ground and now repopulate. And then it brings us to verses 20 and 22 and then over in chapter 9, something important that happens. And in verses 20 through 22, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taken some of all the clean animals and clean birds. He sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then you go over to chapter 9, verses 12 through 17, and it tells us, And God said, this is a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all the life on earth. And so Noah gets out of the boat, and what's one of the first things he does? He builds an altar to God, and he takes some of those clean animals, and he makes a sacrifice before God. And we see God smell the aroma of the offering, and he's pleased with this. We often think of this in a spiritual sense, don't we? This idea of a pleasing aroma before God, our worship, our spiritual worship our, is our offering before God. And so when we praise God, we worship God, we honor God. It's a offering before God. It's a pleasing aroma before God. And so because of this, he, God makes this statement that never again is he going to flood the earth and destroy it. And the sign of this covenant would be a rainbow. And I don't care what people try to, to say to twist it and take it away from what it means. No, we know that when Scripture says a rainbow represents a promise of his covenant, that is what it means. And he tells us what it represents. It represents his promise, his promise to never destroy this earth again with water, to never curse this ground again. But a time will come when God will remake the heavens and the earth. He tells us in this in Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And so here we have the story of the flood, and it's a hard story and it's a difficult story. It's hard to hear sometimes the things that God says in here. I'm, I, I, I feel troubled in my heart. I, I, I wish I would have never done this. But what can, we, what can we learn from this story? Well, I think there's a couple of important things. And the first one is this. God takes sin seriously. God takes sin seriously. He does not like sin. He cannot stand sin. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He does not. He hates sin. He hates sin. And Psalm 5.4 tells us, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. He hates sin. And why does he hate sin? Why does he hate sin? Well, I think the reason for that is, as hard as it is for me to fathom sometimes and to wrap my brain around, God, developed, God created people to be in relationship with him. God, creator, God, part of the Trinity, has everything that he ever needs. And yet he wants relationship with us. And what does sin do to us? It separates us from him. It separates us from him. It is a bridge between us and him. He hates sin because of, in Isaiah 59 two it says, But your inequities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Our sins separate us from him. And man, he takes sin seriously. I think if he takes sin seriously, then we need to take sin seriously. We need to take sin seriously. We need to, you know, be more accountable. We need to make sure that, you know, we're doing everything we can to not chase after the things of this world, to chase after the things that cause us to stumble to, as it says in chapter 4, we can have mastery over our temptation. We can have mastery over sin if we choose to. 
And so we need to take sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. And the second thing I think we can learn from this, is, from this text is this. We need to follow Noah's example to be obedient and righteous before God. We need to be obedient and righteous before God. You know, Noah was actually in the Hall of Fame of Faith in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. It says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. And what does it say over and over and over again when you read through the account of the flood? And Noah did everything God commanded him. Noah was righteous. Noah was obedient over and over and over again. It tells us that he found favor with God because he was righteous. He listened to God and everything he told him to do. And so he was obedient and he was righteous before God. So let's break this down. What is, we need to be obedient. We need to be obedient. Listen to what God calls us to do what God calls us to do. And here's the thing. This isn't just simply reading a list of laws and saying, okay, I'm going to follow this and that's good and, and check off the box. No, to be obedient means to follow him, to do what he says, to listen to his commands, no matter what, no matter what. And I think the problem is for us so often today, we are obedient until the world starts to say, are you really going to do that? And once the world tells us, are you really sure you want to do that? We start to say, okay, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'll do what you think is right. When people start to tell us what we believe is wrong, we start to say, okay, maybe I won't be obedient. And think about Noah. It doesn't tell us, but do you think while he's building this gigantic boat, people are wondering what in the world are you doing? And do you think he's explaining to people what's going to happen? And do you think people are telling him this is foolishness? Possibly. But yet he's obedient. And we need to be obedient. First Samuel fifteen twenty two tells us Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Obedience is important before God. We need to be obedient to what he says, no matter what the cost, no matter what the situation. We need to be obedient in listening to what he calls us to do and what he tells us to do, and that is to live for him. And the second thing is this, we need to seek righteousness. We need to seek righteousness. Proverbs 15.9 tells us, The Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. And I love how God questions put it, or puts it. It says, we pursue righteousness when we pursue the character of Christ and desire holiness more than fleshly indulgence. We need to pursue righteousness. And to pursue righteousness is to pursue, you know, being before God and being right and in favor in his sight. And so we pursue that thing. But here's the thing about righteousness. We're going to stumble a lot. We're going to stumble a lot chasing righteousness. And here's the thing. We can't get righteousness on our own. We can't get righteousness on our own. We can try to find righteousness on our own, but we know through Scripture that righteousness only comes from Christ, through Christ, and putting our faith in Him. That's where true righteousness comes from. And so for us to have righteousness, we need the blood of Christ and we need to put our faith in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 2.15-16 tells us, who are we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles? 
know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but faith by faith in Jesus Christ. And for so long in the Old Testament, the idea of being righteous meant following the law and doing everything the law commanded, and that was no longer the case. Now, in order to be righteous before God, we need the blood of Jesus, and we need to put our faith in him. And I like, again, what God questions says. They say, we remember that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. When we spend time in the presence of God, we become more aware of our own sin and shortcomings. A dingy shirt looks white beside a dark wall, but when compared with snow, the same shirt looks dirty. Pride and self-righteousness cannot remain in the presence of a holy God. Pursuing righteousness begins with a humble heart that seeks the continual presence of God. The humble, believing heart leads to a lifestyle of righteous action acceptable to God. It starts by finding the true source of righteousness, which is the blood of Jesus Christ, and putting our faith in him. We need to pursue obedience and righteousness. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and as they come up, maybe you're here this morning and you have never accepted the gift that God has given you. David talked about in his communion meditation this idea of love. And on Valentine's Day, we celebrate love. But, you know, we remember the truest form of love, the truest expression of love is God sending his son for us. And what was he was obedient. Scripture tells us he was obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. He was obedient and he died on the cross for us. That is the greatest expression of love. That is the greatest form of love. And he did that for us. And maybe you're here this morning and you've never accepted that gift. And that is where our righteousness is found. And so if you've never accepted that gift, now's the time to do so. And give your life to him. Give your life to him. Put your faith, your trust, your heart in his hands. And so if you've never given your life to him this morning on your Connect card, you can fill it out. I'd love to talk with you. Or if you want to talk this morning, I'd love to talk with you. Or maybe you're here this morning and we just haven't been living a life of obedience. We haven't been seeking righteousness, but instead we've been seeking the things of this world. And what we really need to do is we need to listen to the commands of God no matter what that is. And the world is going to try to tell you that you should be different. The world is going to try to tell you that what you believe is foolishness. The world is going to try to tell you that there are better things that it has to offer. But we need to be obedient to what God calls us to, even if it makes us look foolish in the eyes of the world. And we need to seek after righteousness, his heart, his character, the traits of God. We need to seek those things out and live for him. And maybe we've just been getting off track. And so maybe this morning what we need to do is we need to lay our hearts before God and ask God, help me to get back to you, to seeking obedience, to seeking righteousness. And so if you're here this morning and you have a decision to make, I pray that you do so as we stand and we sing.